I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you want to use the uh, blue pew Bibles that are in front of you, you can find that on page 225 of your Bibles. And we are beginning a new series in uh, this book of 1 Samuel, a vivid, a colorful book with great characters and great stories in it. Stories and characters that are known by adults and children alike, ones that we love and ones that we've uh, told to one another, I suspect, from times when we were very young and first coming to understand parts of the Bible. But we are not just studying and considering the book of 1 Samuel because it is interesting or because the characters are such that we find here. Uh, instead, we're studying it and looking at it, and I'll be preaching through it because at least since I've been here, uh, which is going on nine years now, uh, we have been engaged in a slow, uh, what you might call, uh, what has been called a, a Lectio Continua. Uh, which is to say a continuous reading of the Old Testament. Now, along the way, we have missed a few books. Uh, we've skipped a few books in the Old Testament. That's okay. Uh, but in general, we're tracing the history of the people of God. And of course, a little while back, we finished up uh, Judges. We finished up the book of Ruth. And as it turns out, 1 Samuel comes next after those. And this is a practice that is healthy for us as the people of God. I, I want to read a section for you from Dietrich Bonhoeffer where he talks about this process, this, uh, this Lectio Continua, this continuous reading of Scripture, and then the continuous preaching of Scripture amongst the people of God. And I just want you to hear a section of this. I think I've read it before, uh, but I find it encouraging and I find it something we need to hear periodically. So this is what he says. Consecutive reading of biblical books forces everyone who wants to hear to put himself or to allow himself to be found where God has acted once and for all for the salvation of men. We become a part of what once took place for our salvation. Forgetting and losing ourselves, we too pass through the Red Sea, through the desert, across the Jordan, into the Promised Land with Israel. We fall into doubt and unbelief, and through punishment and repentance, experience again God's help and faithfulness. We are torn out of our own existence and set down in the midst of the holy history of God on earth. There, God dealt with us, and there, he still deals with us, our needs and our sins, in judgment and in grace. That's the process that takes place here. That is more valuable than if I were to stand up here and proffer some type of advice about how to make good friends, how to do well at work. It is profitable for us as the people of God to come before the living word of God and to find in the living word of God our story as we are united with the people of Israel, the people who have come before us and walk with them through the mighty, redemptive, historical acts of God throughout history. 
And so oddly, what takes place as we go through this process, because it is the living word of God and the Holy Spirit is alive and at work in each of us now, is that we find God's work amongst them to be helpful for understanding our lives now. And that's the idea that Bonhoeffer says, that that for at least a few moments, we lose ourselves, our present circumstances, and are transported back into their circumstances and then find in that life in God, in Christ, that then helps us to understand what God is doing with us in this world. So see it as that and, and allow the Lord to do that work in you as you hear the word read, as you hear the word preached, that's what we're seeking to do, to be transformed by the word of God with the people of God who have experienced these mighty acts of God. This then, as I read it for us, is the living word of the living God. First Samuel chapter 1, I'll read through verse 20. There was a certain man of Ramathane Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. 
And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose up early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. For unto Hannah and to us a son is given. Let's pray. Living God, thank you for this word that you have given to us. Thank you for the faithfulness that we see in this word, your faithfulness that we see in this word. And as we, your people, come before you and come before your word read and preached today, we pray that you would give us ears to hear this word and to grow in you, to call out to you, to seek after you, the Lord of hosts. And we pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. If we can imagine ourselves for a moment, having never read the Bible, and we picked up a Bible, and we started reading, and we started reading at the book of Genesis. And we had read through the book of Genesis and come up to this very point, up to this passage that I just read for us. And, and we read that passage. I think that our reaction would be something like, now that sounds familiar. Haven't I heard that story somewhere before in Scripture? And now the reminder. It's been a little while since we looked at it, but the book that precedes 1 Samuel is, of course, the book of Ruth. I'll show some connections a little bit further in the sermon to the book of Ruth. But you remember that childlessness was a significant issue in the book of Ruth, a cause for no small amount of sadness and hopelessness in Naomi's life. And if we went back a little bit further, to the book of Judges, we read another story, Judges chapter 13, of the birth of Samson, that starts out in a way that is remarkably similar to what I just read for us. So this passage that we read, there was a certain man, and we go on to learn the man's name, we go on to learn about his wife, Hannah, who is barren. Well, listen to the way Judges 13 starts. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. So if we were reading along, we'd go, wait, I, I think I read the story that is right here some other time. And of course, that's not to mention, or at least not to go into depth of how many echoes of this story are found in the book of Genesis itself. Thinking of Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and their lives and the lives of the, the, the saints then. Childlessness and barrenness, uh, jealousy between wives and problems and families. These are familiar themes. And let's say that, okay, we had, we had gone to that point and said, we told someone about the similarity that we found as we were reading through the Bible, and they said to us, well, you should turn to the New Testament and read the story in Luke chapter 1 of Zechariah, 
and Elizabeth, the story that we just read a few moments ago in the service. We, we would look at that and look at this story and go, wow, wow, there's, there's a lot of similarity going on between these stories. And then perhaps someone might guide us to Isaiah chapter 9 and we would see from Scripture the expectation of a child to be born into this world, a royal son to be given to the people of the earth. And then they might take us to the New Testament once again and show us how in the Son of God, the eternal, almighty Son of God, came into this world being born of a woman that we, by faith, might be able to receive the adoption as sons, that we might be able to become the children of God. And maybe when we heard all of those things together, put together like that, we might be able to say, wait a minute, the Bible seems like a story a marvelous story of the creation and then the disintegration and then the restoration, the redemption of the family of God the Father. Through His Son, Jesus Christ, by the working of His Holy Spirit. And you know what the Holy Spirit does through His servants? The Holy Spirit does through His servants. He turns the hearts of the fathers to the sons, and of the sons to the father. This is a grand story of the creation, the disintegration, the restoration of the family of the living God, who is our Father. We have before us in our text today a family, a worshiping family, but a family, to be sure, with some pretty significant problems that are afoot in that family, and particularly they are burdensome to Hannah. Today what I want us to consider is a soul embittered, a soul poured out, and then a soul that is comforted. First of all, then, from our text, a soul that is embittered. Call me Mara. Do you remember that? That's not in the text I just read. Call me Mara. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And Mara means bitterness. Hannah was deeply distressed just like Naomi in the book of Ruth. Now, Naomi's children had died, leaving her no grandchildren. Hannah is deeply distressed because she doesn't have children. And she wept bitterly, verse 10. It's the same word that we find in Ruth. It's the same Mara word. It's the same kind of bitterness, sadness of heart, anger, resentment, envy that exists towards other people. We saw it in Naomi, we see it in Hannah as well, and of course the reason is not a mystery. There's nothing hidden here in this text that is before us. Elkanah had two wives. 
Presumably, Hannah was the first of his wives. She is listed first here, which would lead us to believe that she is the first of his wives. And Peninnah II, who probably became his second wife, uh, in kind of the same way if you think of Hagar for a moment. Hannah, his wife, was unable to bear children. He takes a second wife, Peninnah, because she's unable to bear children. And of course, Peninnah is able to bear children. Hannah, though she was loved, had to share her husband. And that's not good. Hannah was barren. She was unable to bring forth children. And that was a state of sadness. It was a state of hopelessness. It was a state of loneliness. And it was an occasion of reproach. Sometimes you can feel reproach. You can feel the eyes upon you even if nothing is said. Do you have children? No, I don't have any children. What's wrong with you? You, you, you cursed in some way? Yeah. You, what, what, what happened to you? What did God do to you that you don't have children. Even Elizabeth, and we didn't read this section in Luke chapter 1, but if we had continued the reading, we would have seen that Elizabeth praises the Lord Almighty who, through her son, John the Baptist, has taken away her reproach, taken away that sense of shame, that sense of incompleteness, the eyes that were upon her, just wondering about really what goes on with Zechariah and Elizabeth. But Hannah is the subject of reproach. Of course, that's exacerbated by the fruitfulness of Peninnah. If you look at uh, verse 2, Peninnah had children. And then if you go down a little bit further and look at this, you look at verse 4, all of he, uh, Elkanah gave food to all of her sons and daughters. Peninnah didn't just have a child. Peninnah had all sorts of children, had multiple children. And of course, the bitterness is exacerbated not only by the fact that Peninnah seems to have children whenever she wants to have children, whenever she thinks about having children, whenever there's an opportunity for her to be pregnant once again. Peninnah is pregnant once again, and Hannah must be subject to that. There could be nothing said at all, and it would still be awful for her, but, but... Peninnah makes it worse. Because in a way, Elkanah makes it worse. Peninnah is not as loved as is Hannah. Not that she's not loved, but she's certainly not as loved. And as a result, no doubt, as, an, as Peninnah recognizes this, Peninnah recognizes that, wow, I've given all of these children and yet he loves her more than me. What do you think that does? It makes her bitter and angry and jealous. And it makes her want to put down Hannah. And it makes snide little comments oh so easy. Oh so easy for her to do as it relates to Hannah. But like Naomi, in 1 Samuel here, 
The ultimate responsibility for this barrenness, this childlessness that exists, is not put on circumstances. It's not put on Peninnah. It's not put on Elkanah. It's not put on even Hannah. Because what the text says several times as we look through it is that the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, as he's called for the first time here in Scripture, the Lord that is the commander of all of the heavenly hosts, the commander of all of the hosts of Israel, the commander of all of creation, all that can be seen and all that is unseen. The Lord of hosts, he has closed her womb. And that is the same thing that Naomi says when she comes back into Bethlehem. The Lord has treated me with bitterness, or the Lord has treated me this way, and as a result, I am embittered. Hannah's soul is embittered. It's saddened, it's distressed, it's disappointed, it's anxious, it's vexed. Did you notice all of the words that are describing it? in this text to decide to describe what's going on inside of her she has one sad soul in a great big world before the lord almighty and i come to you in that situation and say to you how is your soul how is your soul maybe your circumstances are completely different than Hannah's circumstances. But it's a sad world. And I guarantee that there is trouble in your soul, there is vexation in your soul, there is bitterness in your soul, there is hurt in your soul, just like there was hurt and bitterness in the soul of Hannah. How is your soul? And how are you going to care for your soul? What medicine can you take for your soul? This comes to our second point. A soul poured out. How do you care for your soul? Follow Hannah. Watch what Hannah does. And, and can we make it as simple as follow Hannah? And then make it as simple as the words of the hymn? How do you care for your soul? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Present earthly comforts are not enough to care for your soul. Elkanah offers her a double portion because he loves her. Now, maybe to us that doesn't seem very significant, an extra piece of meat, an extra scoop of potatoes or whatever it might be. But it was significant. A double portion is a way to show honor. It's a way to communicate love. It's a way to communicate respect, even though circumstances are difficult. And in fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, there is a command. It's actually a command with reference to the child of an unloved wife, that that child be given a double portion to make up for that which is lacking. In this case, that which is lacking is children. In that case, love was lacking. And in fact, Paul gets the idea of this double portion. He brings it into the New Testament and says, elders that rule well are worthy of a double portion, of double honor. 
the same idea that is contained in our text here. Elkanah offers to Hannah a double portion, but it's not enough. Elkanah offers to Hannah his love. He has his love. And he says, listen, isn't my love enough for you? Am I not better than ten sons would be? Because I love you. Earthly comforts, though, are not enough. And let's go forward in time here just a moment so that we don't lose track of this. Earthly comforts, even, even, though this is going beyond the text and I'm admitting that, even this son to come won't be enough for Hannah's soul. You know, parents who have children thinking that that will satisfy them, that will heal the marriage, that will make everything better, it won't be enough for the soul. They're good, but they're not enough to overcome her grief. She must take it to the Lord in prayer. And she prays, and she weeps, and we read that she pours out her soul before the Lord of hosts. She commits her way, she commits her son's way to the Lord, her future son, should the Lord provide, at the place where the Lord has appointed for his worship. And of course, Eli, who is there, and Eli is priest, his sons are priests, but the way this is written, we get the idea that Eli, instead of serving as a faithful, understanding priest, is instead kind of presiding there at the temple. He's sitting outside of the temple on a throne-like structure from which he observes Hannah and her mumbling or her at least lips moving and of course interprets it as drunkenness and not as prayer. Neither Elkanah, her husband, nor Eli, her priest, can help. She will need a different husband. She will need another priest. And she goes then with a new covenant-like confidence to the throne of grace that she might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I put that verse from Hebrews on the front of your bulletin this morning. Eli is anything but a sympathetic high priest. But we have one. We have a sympathetic high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and through that Son who has come, we have access to the Father, to the throne of grace. And we see that far more clearly, we understand it far more clearly than Hannah ever could at this point. And yet there she went, with a wounded, battered, embittered soul, she took it and went to the throne of grace because that's where she could find help and mercy in her time of need. How much more, how much more should we, seeing the high priest who is now stationed at the entrance to that throne of grace, who resides upon that throne of grace, how much more should we 
take the cares of our soul and be beating down the door to the throne of grace. Don't keep the bitterness, the turmoil of your soul internalized, bottled up inside of you. Don't try to rationalize it away and don't think that you can find a resting place for your soul through preoccupation with the good things, let alone the bad things, leave them aside for a moment. With the good things that God has provided in this world, they won't be enough, they will not satisfy. Double portions, even the love of a spouse will not satisfy your soul. It will not be enough. Follow Hannah. Pour out your soul before the Lord. Take it to the Lord in prayer. The Lord who hears groanings and sighs. Even those of his people he hears and responds to. And that leads us to our third point here. A soul comforted. There are two verses that I put on the front of the bulletin this week, the one I just read from Hebrews chapter 4. Let me read the verse on the front from Exodus 3. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. As we will see next week when we look at Hannah's song, Hannah sees what is taking place in her life as being consistent, even a part of, consistent with the character of God and a part of what God has done in redeeming his people, Israel. The God who delivered Israel is the same God to whom Hannah prays in this situation. God delivered his firstborn son from distress and oppression. The Lord remembered Israel. And Hannah's prayer is that in light of being a God who remembered Israel, your firstborn son, remember me. Remember me in my distress, in my barrenness. There's something remarkable, I think, in this. In the Exodus, Yahweh, our God, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was doing something huge. He was doing something that was big and it was grand. He was delivering, he was birthing a nation, bringing them into being. In 1 Samuel, though Hannah doesn't realize it yet, doesn't realize it yet, God is doing something big and grand. For 400 years, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That was the refrain that came out of the book of Judges that was seen many times. That is what closes the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Hannah's child will be a kingmaker. Hannah's child will solve that issue that for 400 years 
has meant for the people of Israel disintegration, separation, disunity, oppression, distress at the hand of any number of enemies who continued to inhabit the land and attack the people of God. He, God, and Samuel to be born are preparing the way for Israel's deliverance from oppression. Exodus, God doing something big and grand. Here, God doing something big and grand. Now, let's zoom forward and then I'll come back just for one more second. Let's zoom forward to the story that we read earlier in Elizabeth and then Mary. God is doing something big and something grand. John the Baptist will prepare the way for the King of Kings to come. He will prepare the way for that whom he will anoint at his baptism. And of course, Mary will give birth to that king, to the son who is to come. You know why he came? How about the words of the hymn? Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. The Son came that you might be born, that you might be born again into the family and the household of God. Big and glorious and world-changing plans are afoot, doings so grand that to to quote Habakkuk, Hannah, if you were told about these things, if you were told what what I'm doing right now, you would not believe it. What does such enormity have to do with a baby in a basket floating on the Nile? What does it have to do with a reproached woman named Elizabeth, older? What does it have to do with a young, betrothed, insignificant woman named Mary? And what does that have to do with a weeping wife, alone, pouring out her embittered soul at a makeshift temple with a not very sympathetic priest at Shiloh. What does such enormity have to do with such puniness? What does the Lord of hosts, the God omnipotent, have to do with such apparent weakness? Such seemingly insignificant people in the grand sweep of human history. What does the Lord of hosts have to do with that? And the answer is everything. Everything. God sees, God hears, He remembers a baby in a basket. Elizabeth, Mary, Hannah, and believe it or not, he remembers you. He remembers you, every one of you, individually. In the torment of your soul right now, which you cannot put your finger on perhaps, which you cannot place, which you cannot figure out, the Lord of hosts remembers each and every one of his people.
You are not a mystery to him. You are not a number to him. You are beloved as a child of God. The love and mercy of God is big, it is grand, it is deep like an ocean. It embraces and it covers Israel and the nations and the world. But maybe sometimes it seems to us that that in and of itself is is grand, it's big, but it's distant, it's impersonal, it's hard to grasp the ocean. It's hard to take a drink out of a river of love that flows like Niagara. I'm glad it's there. But what does it have to do with me? Hannah's story shows us that God is able to shape his love, to form it, so that it fits your soul, that his mercy that his comfort, that his grace doesn't overwhelm you, but fits exactly the shape of the pain in your soul. Your concerns, your life, the big, grand love of God, the cosmic plan of God's kingdom are advancing in 1 Samuel chapter 1. The way is being prepared for a king, and then it is being prepared for the King who will eventually come. In this chapter, even in this situation, as Hannah will sing in, in next week's passage, the pillars of the earth are being set. The pillars of the earth are being strengthened. Doesn't look like it. It looks like a one single lonely embittered woman crying at a temple. That doesn't look like a pillar. But a pillar's being set. The pillars of the earth are established by the Lord and another one is being established and is strengthened right here. And in the midst of that grand work that God is doing, the Lord of hosts shows his concern for one worshiping family, for one woman and her embittered soul, one woman who has taken that embittered soul to the throne of grace. Unto Hannah, a child is born. Unto Hannah, a son is given so that she might be able to say, my soul magnifies the Lord. Blessings, all Hannah's, with 10,000 besides. Father, we thank you for the vastness of your love. How high and how deep and how wide and how broad is your love. And yet, you have condescended, become incarnate in your Son, so that we might know the love of God outpoured and poured out into our souls. Help us to pour out our souls before you, knowing that you will care well for us as you have cared for the saints who have gone 
before us. Jesus, you are a faithful and you are a sympathetic high priest, a faithful son in all of the house through whom we have adoption. And we rejoice in that and we thank you and we praise you in your name.